Maybe you've uh, led a prayer group. Maybe you've uh, taught a class in, in, in church. Maybe you've led children or a small group. Have you, have you tried ministry? Uh, I'm wondering what you learned. I'm wondering what you, you gleaned from that experience. Maybe you tried reaching out to your neighbors. Maybe you tried opening up your house on a regular basis or your apartment. Or maybe you've tried engaging those at work and with an intentional kind of conversation and try to you're trying to present the Christian life, and maybe you've tried ministry. And uh, unlike, uh, unlike, unlike me, uh, I, I don't know if I can opt out. I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of in ministry in a different way than you are. <laughs> and um, it's probably a good idea that I showed up to preach this morning. So, um, so you have the opt-out option, right? And um, because you got tired... Because you didn't see any fruit? You thought, well, I've served for three months. Someone else should do this, right? Um, there's a lot of reasons to, to disengage in ministry, right? A lot of reasons to disengage. I want to talk to you today about Ephesians 5 as a way of being refueled, as a way of practicing the Christian life in such a way that you don't ever... Well, you, you know how to handle the temptation to disengage, let me tell you a story. When I was uh, 26 years old, um, I had been in full-time vocational Christian ministry for two years. And uh, I had flown up to Portland uh, from Northern California and was attending a large gathering of youth pastors, which is a scary event itself. Crazy, crazy, fun, exciting, goofy, sometimes serious. But I was there to, to get some more ideas I had been running hard. I was excited about our student ministry in the first church I served. I got a lot of energy from it. I got excitement from it. It was adrenaline. It was fun. It was it was interesting. It was we saw lives we saw lives changed. But uh, when I entered the the hotel room where the conference was in Portland that that day, I did something as a 26 year old. Uh, I felt in shape. I, I opened the door of my hotel room, and in that little hallway inside the hotel room, that little eight-foot hallway there, right, I just stopped, and I leaned against the wall. Uh, tired, drained. Um, what, what is this? I, I just leaned against the wall, and tried to sort of collect myself for a moment. And a wave of strange fatigue sort of came over me. It was, didn't know, I didn't know what this was. And uh, sort of kind of regrouped, and then I, I attended uh, the conference. It's interesting in that at that time, there was a presenter named Gordon McDonald who had just written a book entitled Ordering Your Private World. And I attended uh, four days, I believe it was, of, of presentations of ordering your private world about the gauges in your life, about the, the dashboard of your life, the dashboard of your life, and, and when the, da- the gauges start getting down to empty, what do you do? What do you do? Um, I began to realize that as exciting as ministry was, 
There is a call to refuel yourself. There is a call for self-care. It's interesting if you read the chapter uh, Luke 4 and 5, you'll find numerous references to Jesus Christ himself going off into a lonely place, praying, uh, communing with his heavenly Father. Interesting. Now, as I describe myself as being empty, uh, does that describe, describe you this morning? Empty. There's a hollowness in, in you. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all that there are circumstances in your life where, uh, as you've been interacting with your schedule, your life, your time, it has been extremely hard for you to stay joyful. It's been extremely hard for you to 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 have energy and you sort of learn how to sort of fake it and sort of look pleasant on the outside but inside you're feeling unreal and you're not you're not sort of honest with yourself what does it look like to to lead yourself first to lead yourself first that's a a title of a talk from a, a guy I know named Dan Webster who has been through much of this kind of thing. Think about, uh, think about the illustration of, of a boat, uh, which Dan uses in, in one of his talks. The illustration of a boat, and there's a boat in the harbor, and all the riggings look good, all the brass is shined, and it looks, looks really good. On the, the top of the boat is impressive. But for at least particularly any kind of boat, uh, I'm thinking of a sailboat in my mind, but uh, the most important part of a sailboat is, is really what's going on below the water line. Is the hull full of barnacles? Is it in good shape? Is, there, is it able to handle? Is, it, there's, is there enough weight below the water line to, to sail? All that kind of stuff. What's going on below the water line in our lives is far more important because it's from there that we, we live. Think of uh, Psalm 16. I have set the Lord continually before me he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is, therefore my heart is glad. Below the, the waterline of my life, my, my, my heart is glad. If we neglect our self-care, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. We are leaning against the wall, maybe not inside a hotel room, but somewhere we are trying to figure out how to regain our our inner life. First Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for in so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we are required to pay close attention to ourselves. We have, uh, we have a gift to give other people. And that is the overflow of our lives. Uh, we're not the gospel, but we embody the character qualities of the God we are saying saves. We are putting his characteristics in front of other people. It's quite a remarkable thing that God uses us to commend the gospel. Watch over your heart with all diligence, the book of Proverbs tells us, chapter 4. For from it flow the springs of life. So there's an intentional call to self-care uh, before us today. And the, this Ephesians passage, 
is talking about time, about being wise, about not, uh, not uh, turning to drunkenness. We'll talk about that. And it's talking about singing, and it's talking about submitting. Verse, verse 21 of the passage. Interesting, these, these, these time management, caring for yourself, um, dealing, dealing, with, uh, dealing with oneself, uh, I'm going to be arguing, is one of the key aspects of our time. And then the, the whole idea of how do, we, how do we foster joy in our life, and then what is the role of submitting others? These are practices of the Christian life. You are practicing something this morning. You are engaging in a, in a discipline. Uh, it took discipline to get here this morning. Uh, it is a discipline of engagement. A discipline of engagement. You are engaging others and your Lord in the context of corporate worship. And Ephesians 5, I believe, is, pra- is telling us, prescribing for us, practices of the Christian life. And I believe they relate to sustaining vitality in the Christian life. So stewarding time, pursuing joy, and then this partnering, partnering with others. And may these all kind of connect with the theme of, of leading yourself first. So let's talk, let's talk for a minute about time. Look at verse 15. Look carefully at how you walk. That's interesting. Just look. Look. Take a look. Stop. Look. Look carefully how you walk. Not as wise, but not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. You're in the context of a world of many, many temptations. You are in the context of uh, of of a life. If you are a, a professing Christian, if you trusted Christ, if you're, hey, I'm trusting Christ. Uh, you are in the midst of a in between world. The already but not yet. You're not fully yet what you will become. Process of sanctification is underway. Part of that is using, the middle world here is using your time wisely. And the idea of walking is a regular engaged activity. The idea of walking essentially is living your life. That's what Paul's intending here. Let me borrow an illustration from Gordon MacDonald that he he used at a lecture I, I attended um, you should imagine that we've got, uh, let's say, Brandon and Bill uh, get a long piece of tape, and uh, they go out on the road, and we've got some police stopping the traffic, and we're all going to engage in a 100-yard dash. So get ready, runners. Ready? We're all going to gather, and we're going to run for 100 yards. And then uh, uh, some of you, we, we, we take off, and we're running, and some of you instantly, we can tell you are sprinters. Um, the rest of us are waiting for the bus. No. Uh, and then about halfway through the, uh, halfway through the, uh, the race, uh, Bill and Brandon wave their hands and say, no, 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 sorry, 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 guys. It's actually a 1,500-meter race. It's about four, four times around the track. Right? So they, they, they go taking off up into, up into Mono Willie, 1,500 miles, uh, 1,500 meters, excuse me, and then uh, that'd be a big race. 1,500 meters, and uh, so we all, okay, we all regroup, regroup, and we start, we start again. That's a little different race, isn't it? Not quite a sprint, is it? And then, of course, they, they, these, guys are, these guys are wise guys, so they, they change halfway through the race, and they say, actually, guys, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. 
So uh, take off down the poly, and we'll, we'll see you up in Kahuku or something. So <clears throat> all the sprinters are now thinking clearly, and, and wow, what, what does this mean for my, my strategy to run this race? You see, a, a sprinter has reserves, and the point of sprinting is to just leave them all there on the track, right? And there was burnout, burn right? You don't want to uh, jog. You want to sprint. You want to run as fast as you can. But a, a marathon runner doesn't do that. And a marathon runner is interesting is that they are thinking about how to sustain the running itself. That's the major preoccupation. How do I run so that I can keep running. And that, I think, is the call of the Christian life. How do I run, look carefully as how I walk, is Paul's language, look carefully how I live so that I can keep living the Christian life, living it in such a way that I am commending the Christian life. If you're a runner and you look really sad... No one's going to want to be a runner like you. So part of the task of running is to be able to run in such a way that it is joyful. It is good to be a runner. We were commending to people the idea of running. But we have to have a strategy. And then something happens when you are now managing your time carefully, you are perhaps, I would suggest, disengaging, using your time to catch up with your your reserves. So you aren't leaning against the wall of a hotel room wondering what on earth's gone on with the gauges in my life. You're running in a careful way. And as you run, you begin to notice, and if it is indeed a marathon, you notice that pain does enter your life. And pain is something that happens, and we want to have relief. Pain comes rising up out of us as Christians. We have unresolved issues in our life, and we begin to discover that even some of the reasons why we want to look a certain way with our lives is we're actually hiding something from ourselves. We want to sound like a runner but we've really sort of lost the desire to run. We might look or dress like a runner, but we don't really like running. It's like a TV chef. Imagine a TV chef. They they cook all sorts of things. They put in their time at at the studio, and then they come home, and they don't ever want to even enter the kitchen of their house. They hate food. I wonder if there's one out there. I come home and they make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they say, that's enough. I wonder if there's someone today who's selling boats somewhere in the world and they talk talk enthusiastically about boats all, all day long. They sell boats. Maybe they don't even have one. Maybe they don't even own one. Maybe they don't sail for their own pleasure. They find no joy in boats. See, my point here is that as you go along in the text, let me see if I can build this case. Look, look carefully at verse 15. 
Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine. (laughs) Verse 18. Does anybody feel a disconnect in those verses? I was cruising along just fine in the previous verses, verses 15 and 16. That's, I get it, okay. And then it would, could be an illustration of foolishness. I, I guess I get that. Verse 15, don't get drunk with wine. I want to step back a bit and ask this, uh, give this as an observation. The Ephesian church was actually trained by the Apostle Paul for something like two years. Can you imagine that? He's there. You have a question, he's right over there. Go talk to him. He's providing lectures, um, sermons. He is training uh, leaders in discipleship. The Apostle Paul is among the Ephesians, and then he writes this, Ephesians 1 through 3, these incredible chapters in the Bible of theological beauty and extraordinary wonder. And then at the, at, toward the end of his, his remarkable epistle, he says, be wise, be careful, and don't get drunk. Does that strike anybody as odd? You take a group of squeaky clean seminarians and their, and their, their wives, and, and they're about to graduate, and they look just so sharp, and they have just massive amounts of theological knowledge and they're just incredible and they've never gotten a B plus and then the, 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 at the graduation sermon to get them out into the world and by the way uh, be wise and make the most of your super, and, and don't get drunk what on earth is going on here I'm going to suggest to you that that Paul is giving the Ephesians practices and he's warning them of the proclivities of the heart. That when the marathon is actually being experienced, there's pain rises up in the heart, pain rises up in our experience, and we want, with pain, we want it to be alleviated. And it's hard to be wise continually. And it's hard to always be on your guard. And it's hard to make the best use of your time all the time. And out of the blue, toward the end of the Ephesian letter, Paul says, Beware. Beware of the proclivity of your heart. Management of your time, wisely using time for self-care, may expose in you the tendencies, in one example, of how you're using alcohol. Wisely disengaging, where you can introduce yourself to yourself, you can clear the noise out of your head, and you begin to see the patterns of your life, you begin to see the things you're turning to to alleviate pain in your life, And you begin to see that they are illegitimate uses. See, there are so many different traditions within the, the, the Christian church that are bumping into this. Something about inner disciplines. Something about disengaging and being alone. 
something about refueling and finding ways to get re-energized, something about while you're running, you're keeping reserves for the rest of the race. Something's going on here. The race is longer than I thought, and sustaining a desire for the race itself is part of the, the race. See, that's what's going on. In the call to a sustained ministry, we must sustain our desire for ministry itself. And uh, there are beautiful examples, and I say beautiful because they are repentant, honest, heartfelt. Here are my wounds. Here is my, here is my, here is my own proclivity to try to deal with my pain. There are beautiful examples of people who are expressing honestly how they sought to deal with their pain in an illegitimate way. Uh, Pastor Skip Ryan uh, headed up a large church, still involved with it, uh, in the Dallas area. And he, and you can hear this online, spoke in front of 2,000 elders of the PCA at the General Assembly about seven, eight years ago. And he spoke of the day when he... first took a pain pill and he didn't need it. And he was doctor shopping and he was dealing with the pressures of ministry and got addicted to painkillers. And God, by his grace, rescued him out of that. And now he's open with how he was failing at the area of self-care. You see, we, one writer says that we have to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, and dwell in the gentle, healing presence of our Lord. A compulsion is a strong, usually irresistible impulse to act, and it is sometimes presented, if we look at it, as irrational. It's, it's sometimes contrary to even what we would want. For some of us, it is the compulsion of just busyness. Slowing down is a threat. We have a compulsive sort of disorder toward busyness, and self-care is not taking place. Our Heavenly Father wants to reassure us continually, daily, of his love for us. We are not what we do in this world. We are not our performance. Preacher, you are not your sermon. You are not the status the world gives you. And some of us are beginning to realize that all our efforts to somehow make life work for us, to make people respond to us in a certain way, some of us are realizing it's not working. And this is a place I believe God would have you be. Where you begin to say, then, Heavenly Father, you can love me for who I am. You can be with me, and you want to be with me, and you want to restore me through your heavenly love. Keep watch on yourself and your teaching, 1 Timothy 4. Persist in this. And part of that is disengaging. To see the compulsions that we are living by. God in his love would have us be wise with our time and commit 
more of it than we probably imagine to self-care. Maybe this means a conversation with your spouse, uh, figuring out how to have your children uh, watched, or uh, and maybe we in the church need to begin to say, hey, you need uh, 24 hours with your spouse or some time a- alone. Please drop your kids off at my house. I'll do what I can to take care of them. And please come over, uh, bring them over so you can have some time to disengage. If tomorrow we could all get our schedules figured out, everybody gets the day off, and we hired professional babysitters for all our kids, and you had 24 hours. And elders, pastors, we prescribe for you things to read, stuff to do. Maybe you don't want to do anything. Take a journal, go to the beach, and get the noise out of your head. Discover some of the things that have been ruling your life, becoming wise with your time. And then we all gathered after that 24-hour period I'll tell you what would fill this room. What would fill this room by disengaging like that, you would have a spark in your eye. You'd have a sense of of well-being. You'd have a sense of the Father's love for you. You would be engaged. Something will have happened. You see, ministry flows out of our hearts. And so the heart needs to be watched and cared for and diligently loved. Now, another interesting area here is that Paul moves from uh, this example of, of, well, just trying to deal with your pain through drunkenness. Um, And by the way, uh, the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine. But some of you are going to ask me, now, can we get drunk with other things? That's that's not what it's intending there. Um, But secondly, uh, notice the the emphasis on singing in these next, next verses. Uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse uh, 15, uh, 18. Be filled. And the sense of that word is be filled and continue being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Oh, the interesting is that the heart now comes, comes to center of the, of the passage. And giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, that is a, that's, that's a message about hope. And that's my second point. Hope, seriously pursued, can bring a better song. <laughs> And I think that what's really being prescribed here is the practice that we've already engaged in this morning. These are practices. This is uh, what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 as putting on the new self. You're engaged in singing this morning, and through song you are expressing and learning and relearning and rediscovering the joy that should be in your heart, that is in your heart, that can be manifested to others. So the passage is really about an engaged, reconnected heart. It's from the heart that a person sings. But if there is nothing happy and there's hollowness and sadness, self-hatred, there is no song there. So this is re-engaging with our Heavenly Father's love. What would the Spirit do if we were filled with the Spirit? End of verse 18. 
What would it look like? Well, we don't have three techniques on how to be filled with the Holy Spirit from this passage. But we know that that is a continual experience in the Christian life. Being baptized in the Spirit is a, is a way of, of describing conversion in the Bible, and that happens once. But being filled is a repeated experience. What would it look like? It, it has to include being reassured of the Father's love for you. Unburdening oneself of the weight of carrying the world, the weight of carrying um, re- responsibilities that are ultimately God's. Being filled with the Spirit has got to do something with a joyful daughter and son recognizing, realizing, remembering God is in charge. God can be sung about. God is sovereign. God is good. The Spirit is poured out into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. And he, the Spirit is connected with hope. And isn't that... take. The image of running, and when you're running and you're on the ninth mile, I don't know what this is like, but when you're, when you're running and on the ninth mile, I imagine, those of you, Matt, go to you can give us a testimony. When you're on the ninth mile and your heart is filled with hope that mile 26 is going to be your reality, I would imagine that during the ninth mile you have a little bit of a skip in your step. It's important to have hope. Hope seriously pursued can bring a better song. Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So that is a shame-pursuing hope. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As Scotty Smith said, we leak grace And uh, it wouldn't surprise me, and this probably should be the way we talk. Uh, I've I've lost sight of God's goodness. Pray for me. I need to remember his goodness. Pray for me. My heart needs to sing, and I, I've been singing a sad song. These are disciplines. This is a discipline of engagement, and it's perfectly normal, I think, that you could enter this room and there's no song in your heart. But maybe there will be again. And maybe our songs here will help. But there is to be a song in the heart. So that we commend running. We cook food at home if we're a pro chef. We, it, it, it's not just a, a compartmentalized life where I go, well, I do that Sunday thing, but but that the thing that really works for me is over here. So lacking joy, I, I put this on your outline, lacking joy is oil on the surface of my life. It's the image of a submarine, and when a submarine is in trouble and the, uh, and the enemy has been able to damage the sub that's down below, how do you know there's been a hit? Well, the oil will somehow make its way up to the surface, Right? Well, the surface oil of our life can be anger, disdain, irritability, coldness of heart. And the cross just becomes fuzzy. See? And we just, we, we're, just we're, we're caught up, in, in, um, we're caught up in, in the pain of life. 
some emotion has gripped us. And what, what Paul is prescribing for the Ephesians is, is a life of regular, disciplined engagement. I have a, hymn, I have a hymnal at home. You should, you should hear me sing by myself. Well, sometimes I turn to it, and when I look at these words on the hymnal, the words just, they, they, they feel wooden. But then I remember the melody, and I go, ah, the melody helps the words become beautiful. And sometimes the words help the melody become beautiful, and they kind of work together. And this is what happens with us, is that the joy that you communicate to someone else will help them. They'll help them remember. See, there's, there's the written music, the gospels, the written music, but then there's the melody that we sing with our lives. And that can encourage other people. Believing that we have a Heavenly Father. Songs express renewal and they call for renewal. And then look, just, just uh, finally look at the uh, idea there expressed in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, these are practices of the Christian life. Um, you will uh, you probably get into, get into danger uh, living the Christian life uh, in, as a solo runner. Um, I think, uh, thirdly, others help bridge the gap between our public and our private lives. This is part of the marathon racing strategy. God's grace has us in the race, but the race itself, uh, in the, through the race, we get, we get help by working a plan. And here is a plan, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, I talked to a church planter in uh, San Francisco. Uh, the PCA has a new church plant right downtown. And uh, he moved there from Atlanta, and he said that in his Atlanta church, the men in the church, groups of twos and threes, guys, listen on this one, at 5 o'clock, they call each other. It's about a 10, 12-minute phone call, and each group can figure out what they want to talk about, but it is about their life, their loves, their temptations, their pursuits, their joys, their songs. How, how's, how is the race running, and how can I help you? Every day, for 12 minutes, they express verse 21 of Ephesians 5. They are not about to let the gauges of their lives get down to empty. There's a plan. There's a practice. And we should expect that we will wrestle with the compulsions of our lives. The irrational choices that are self-destructive. We, will, we should expect that when the race gets hard we might even hate the race. Why am I doing this? What's it for? What do I get out of it? I think I can get something better out of this. So, expressing honesty, we kill the power of a private, secret life. Expressing honesty, we kill the power of a private, secret life. In submitting to one another, we express the wisdom of God and we glean wisdom from others. 
And so holiness, instead of a threat, holiness is freedom. Holiness is coming out and being free. And it is a regular, I believe verse 21, submitting to one another, is a means of grace. That is a way of building you up, reviving you, restoring you. Ephesians 5.21 is another way of saying 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. So finally, when we think about time, we think about the call to have a song in our heart, and we think about submission, who managed their time the best? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Who engaged in worship and communion of his, of his Father the best? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And who submitted and showed what submission is the best? Our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's beyond just a good example. He is the risen king who now you have access to his very life. His life is in you. In the language of Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ has brought you into union with himself that you might be wise, that you might have a a song in your heart, that you'd be willing to submit to to your brothers and sisters, that you might run the race well and commend the whole idea of running, commending Christ with the joy and the overflow of your heart. May may we lead ourselves first. And there's so much more that can be said on this subject. And bug me, pursue me. I can send you all kinds of stuff on this subject. We just gave an introduction today. Let's pray.